Good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to draw your attention to page four in the bulletin, uh, which is where our teaching text will come. Uh, if you guys notice where it says sermon title, um, that is because uh, I just put that as a placeholder as I pondered the title, and then I forgot about it <laughs> and sent it off. And so there you have it. And so you guys are probably wondering, well, then what is the sermon title? Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I'm not quite sure how to call it. I suppose I'll have to name it by the time it goes up on the web. But uh, for now, no sermon title. <laughs> All right. Um, so the teaching text comes from John 15. And uh, I'll read to you starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This is the word of God. Uh, So the question before us, the issue, is uh, what is our relationship to the world as Christians? And it's a very difficult question because Jesus gave us very clear instructions how we as believers are to relate to one another, right? We're to love one another. We're to be united. We're to be a family. We're to be of one mind with each other. But is that the way we are to be with the world? And by the world, I mean, you know, our non-Christian neighbors, coworkers, and friends. And uh, if you look at the Bible, uh, you get somewhat conflicting instructions, right? A little bit confusing because on the one hand, you have passages like James 4.4 where it says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's to oppose God. Or you have passages like uh, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. But then on the other hand, you have passages like John 3.16, uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so, which is it? Are we to love the world or are we to not love the world? And uh, Christians have, you know, through the ages come up, broadly speaking, with three answers, three responses. And here's basically my outline. Uh, One idea, one approach is that we conform to the world. Another answer is that we reject the world. And I want to show you that in these first two responses, um, as attractive as they may be, as, as much as they may capture some of the truth, they fall short and they're wrong. And that the third answer, which I would call uh, we engage with the world, is the gospel approach, and it's the approach that Jesus is teaching us here in our passage. So uh, let's begin, okay? So point number one, which is this idea that we're to conform with the world. And a lot of Christians say we need to reduce the tension between the world and us as Christians. And we do this by adopting the world's values, by assimilating into the world, uh, and by blending in. And the assumption here is that uh, to be a Christian is really no different than to be a good Buddhist or a good secular person, that it's all really just getting to the same thing, right? 
And here you're really just reducing Christianity to basically an ethical system. It's basically about being good. And the only difference between all the world's religions is merely the name, the label. But it's all getting to the same thing. And so therefore, why do we have to fight? Can't we just all get along? Um, and this is the approach, by the way, that liberal Christians take, many Christians take, uh, mainland Protestant denominations. But here's the problem. And I see two problems here. Number one, it's a denial of Christ. Because Jesus said, and we've looked at this a few weeks back, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He made these extraordinary, exclusive claims of himself. And so therefore, you really can't reduce Jesus to some sort of ethical teacher. And the second problem is the denial of the gospel. Because if Christianity is basically about being good, then it's not salvation by grace, but it's salvation by works, right? But now most Christians don't take this approach, right? Most evangelical Christians, right? Uh, we know that you really can't sugarcoat the gospel, that the Christian faith is inherently offensive, but people still conform in a subtler way. And they do it by being dualistic. And what do I mean by being dualistic? Here's what I mean. People are Christians when they come to Sunday worship. They sing the songs, they pray the prayers, they proclaim the faith, but when it comes to Monday in the weekday, they keep their mouth shut, they don't make waves, and uh, even though they're Christians on Sundays, it's a way of conforming, it's a way of blending in. Why? Because the world can't tell you apart. And I have a name for this. Uh, I call this being a ninja Christian, right, where you're kind of like a secret agent, and your goal is to keep everyone from finding out the crazy things that you believe, that you're a Christian, right? That you're constantly in stealth mode. Uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, this was in junior high, the most traumatic, most difficult thing for me at that time was praying during school lunch. And at my school, at least, uh, there were a few people who would pray before lunch. And... Uh, you know, when they did it, everyone knew, oh, those were the Christians. Those were the religious people. And I didn't want that kind of scrutiny. I didn't want to be associated with that. I didn't want people to know that I was a Christian. But then I knew that uh, I was supposed to be grateful for everything that God gave me. And I was supposed to give thanks. And so I came up with a plan. And uh, in my plan, what I would do is every time it was lunch, I would drop my fork. And as I bent down to pick it up, I would mutter under my breath, Thank you, God, for this meal. Amen. <laughs> and no one was the wiser. No one knew that I had just prayed. Now, so many of us do this, do we not, at our work and at our school. Let's be honest, right? Let's really examine our lives. We don't want people to find out about our faith. And maybe we justify it by saying to ourselves, well, it would be inappropriate to bring religion into the workplace, to bring it into the classroom. And don't get me wrong, <laughs> uh, there are definitely inappropriate times uh, and places where it's, it's, it's not right, it's not good to you know, talk about Jesus in that particular situation. But you know, come on, I've worked right, in companies before. I know that there are situations, right, when you're just talking with your cubicle mate 
when it's perfectly fine to talk about faith and religion. In fact, that co- the topic comes up, but you stay silent and you let the opportunity pass. Or maybe some of you, for some of you, people know that you're a Christian, right? But that's all they know. You're just a Christian in name only. And, you know, there are all these situations where maybe a friend comes to you and they're confiding in you. You know, they're telling you uh, maybe they just went through this breakup or maybe they're, you know, having stress, financial stress or some kind of depression. And they're just, you know, really pouring out their heart to you and they're saying, you know, what does life mean? What is our existence all about? And they basically hand it to you on a platter the question, tell me about Jesus, right? Tell me the meaning of life. What, what is the meaning, what is the hope that you have? And you stay silent. You're like, I don't know. It's really tough. Why are you silent? You're silent because you don't want to bring trouble on yourself, right? You're silent because you don't want that enormous hassle. You don't want to suffer. And the problem here with living the, the ninja Christian life is that, first of all, it's a double life. Right? You're one way on Sundays and you're another way on Monday. And maybe, you know, it's because you don't know how to integrate faith in work. You don't know how to integrate faith in school. And, uh, you know, let's talk about it. We'll talk about it more in the time to come. But don't we agree that we should be the same person at church and at work? Different contexts. But Jesus is Lord, right? Still. And the second thing is that you're denying Christ. Because Jesus is Lord over all of your life, not just on Sunday. He is Lord over your workplace, and he's Lord over your classroom. So that's the first thing, right, is that um, you conform to the world. And it's really a kind of lack of courage, and it's really just a lack of belief in who Christ is. But the second approach, the second tactic, is that you reject the world. And here, you think of the world as this evil place full of sinners, full of uh, corruption. And just like in the first part, uh, it comes in two flavors. And so the first, uh, the first flavor, I would say, is that you withdraw from the world. And here you set up these little Christian islands in this vast sea of, uh, you know, secular and pagan world, right? And you just want to minimize your contact with non-Christians. You only want to interact with other Christians. And you only want to go to Christian schools. And you only want to work in Christian companies. Uh, and here I know I need to uh, step very carefully. I need to be uh, very precise because I know a great many of you uh, have gone to Christian schools. A great many of you uh, are homeschooled. And so, I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Let me be very, very precise. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to Christian school. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, there are very great God-glorifying reasons uh, to be educated with a Christian worldview. But, listen, do we not agree that it's possible that the reason why you're in Christian school is because you want to withdraw from the world, right? And it cuts both ways. You can go to public school and be surrounded by non-Christians and basically keep your head low and be a ninja Christian, Right? And you can go to Christian schools and be surrounded by only believers because you don't want any contact with non-Christians. And either of these approaches, basically you're avoiding confrontation, you're avoiding suffering. And so what's the problem here? It's not so much a denial of Christ, but it's a denial of his mission. 
Because what did Jesus say at the end of Matthew, the Great Commission? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. He's not saying, you know, there's so few of you. I don't want to endanger you guys. Why don't you just stay safely huddled together and camp out in Jerusalem? No, he said, go out there into the world where people don't know me. Go out where you will be a minority, where you will be surrounded by, uh, by non-Christians and be my witnesses and interact. All right, so that's, that's the first way, right? We can withdraw from the world. And the second way is you can condemn the world. And here you're not withdrawing from the world, right? You're, you know, you're interacting with non-Christians, but your relationship with non-Christians is entirely antagonistic and combative, when I was in uh, high school, uh, so in junior high, I was a kind of coward, right? And I, I, I didn't want to let people know that I was a Christian, but I became convicted, right, that that was, you know, not being faithful to Christ. I was ashamed of Christ. So I kind of swung in the opposite direction in high school. And uh, I was one of those people, one of those students, uh, do you know who I'm talking about, where any time there was some kind of debate about religion, I was in the middle of it, or maybe I was the one who started it. And I would just, you know, be so eager to argue and to fight. And, you know, I would pick all these inappropriate times and moments, fight with the teacher, fight with my classmates. And I just love to, you know, just do like verbal jujitsu on somebody and kind of like slam them down and, and make them submit. Um, and I have a name for this as well. And I would call this the obnoxious Christian. Right? This is the Christian who is just so loudly proclaiming their faith. You know, maybe they're wearing a Christian t-shirt every day. And, but they're incredibly insensitive and they're judgmental. And on the surface, they look holy. Right? On the surface, they look like super Christian and they look like they're engaging with the world. But actually, actually, listen, it's a rejection of the world. Because they're not really listening to their non-Christian friends. They're not really trying to understand. It's really just more like an us versus them mentality. And they're at war with the world. And the problem here is that it's self-protective. And I know that's counterintuitive because it looks like they're suffering. It looks like you know, they're getting all of this heat. But listen, because they don't love, because they're not really connected, they're not truly suffering. You know, and there can be a kind of, and trust me, I know this is the case because it was kind of like that for me. You can kind of get a perverse pleasure in suffering, you know. It's like, oh, look at me. I'm a martyr. I'm suffering for Christ. But you're not really enduring and suffering for his name's sake. And the other problem is that it's really born out of pride, right? You're proclaiming Christ, but as a way to feel superior to the other person. And the final problem is that it's not really gospel-centered. You're slamming them with the law. You're slamming them with the truth. But where is the love and where is the compassion of the gospel? Okay, so those are the first two approaches, right? You can conform to the world. You can reject the world. But both of these fall short. What's the answer? And here we get back to the original question, which is, should we love the world or should we not love the world? Which is it? And Jesus here in, in the story, uh, in our passage, and the Bible in general, gives us the answer that it's both. That the Christian is to live in paradox. That the Christian is to be in tension with the world. 
And uh, the Bible gives us so many metaphors, and let me just draw out one, right? Let me just explain one, which is this fascinating passage in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, that Christians have their citizenship in heaven. And let me just tell you that that is one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood passages. Because a lot of people, when they hear that Christians have their citizenship in heaven, they understand that to mean, oh, what that means is that one day, we will leave this earth. We'll abandon this, this land. And we'll go up to heaven where our true citizenship is. And, you know, in the meantime, we're just supposed to kind of endure, keep our head low, until one day we'll get to our true destination, which is heaven. And that, let me tell you, is the exact opposite of what Paul was trying to convey. Because when, when Paul was talking about citizenship, he was drawing that from the Greco-Roman world. And let me explain to you how it worked in that, in that time. You see, Rome, the city of Rome, would have these armies. And on occasion, one of the armies would come back, victorious from battle. And after years and years, decades and decades of service, the soldiers would honorably retire. And Rome owed an obligation to these soldiers, who were, by the way, Roman citizens. And they owed them, you know, land, they owed them a home, they owed them, you know, a good living. But the city was overcrowded, all the good land was taken, and Rome did not want ex-soldiers wandering the streets with nothing to do. And so what Rome would do is Rome would take these soldiers, these citizens, and they would send them off as settlers to found a new colony in a foreign land. And was the point that these citizens was sort of waited out in the colony until one day they could go back to Rome? Absolutely not. Was the point that, you know, Rome was saying to these settlers, you guys are no longer associated us, with us, you're no longer our citizens, go out there and make it out on your own. And, you know, just, they just sort of blend in and sort of assimilate into the greater barbarian culture? Absolutely not. When the settlers were sent out, they were to maintain Roman culture. They were to be Roman citizens. This was a new Roman city. And they were to establish trade contacts and do alliances with the local peoples and so spread the influence of Rome. And in that way, Rome conquered the world, right? It was a projection of Roman power and Roman culture and civilization. And the fascinating thing about that passage in Philippians 3 is that Paul wrote that letter to the church in Philippi. And Philippi was just such a Roman colony. It was settled by ex-Roman soldiers. And so when the church read that letter, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. Paul was telling them, you are citizens of heaven. You are a colony of heaven here on this earth. And you are to maintain a, culture, a Christian culture of grace, of love, of sacrifice in a world of hate and brutality and evil. And you're to be a vanguard. You're to be like a beachhead of the coming reality, a foretaste of heaven. Because what happens at the very end of the story in the Bible? Do we all leave earth and go to heaven? Absolutely not. What happens at the end of Revelation? Heaven itself comes down, right? The new Jerusalem comes down and a new earth is born. There's a renewal of all creation. It's a new creation, okay? So what does that mean for us? It means that we are to love the world, but we are not to love the values of the world. It means that we're to be in the world, not withdraw, not reject. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not to assimilate or conform. We're to be utterly for the world. We're to serve the world 
And yet, we are to remain distinct and separate from the world. And in that sense, we are, as Christians, a paradox. We're a mystery. Because the world knows that there's something different about you, something strange. You don't seem to buy into the system. You know, you don't chase after what everyone else chases after. And you believe in some pretty outrageous things, right? That Jesus is the only way. And yet, and yet, you are the most engaged, the most committed to the peace and prosperity of the world, right? You're, you're, you're this paradox, right? On the one hand, you're distinct and separate, and yet you're not, you're not, you know, completely divorced from the world. You're absolutely engaged with the world. You're loving the world. You're serving the world, and yet you're different from the world. And that is the only way you can truly help the world. That's the only way you can truly help a friend. Imagine this scenario. You have a friend who is an alcoholic. And um, you watch your friend sort of descend deeper and deeper into this problem. And he's just throwing his life away. He's destroying his relationships, destroying everything that he has. Now, you can do one of three things. You can go to your friend and say to him, hey, it's cool. You know, not say a single word. Never tell him that he's doing anything wrong. You can conform. Or you can say to your friend, look at the mess you've made of your life. You're destroying everything in your path. I don't want to be there when you're just making a mess of everything. And you cut your friend off. You can reject. Or you can engage. You can go alongside your friend and say, I love you. I, I care so deeply about you. But I can't let you go on like this. You're destroying yourself. You're killing yourself. And in that sense, that is the far greater, deeper, difficult path. Because you're opening yourself up to suffering, right? Because you're saying to him, I'm going to walk the difficult journey with you back to health. And when you fail and you're laying there in the gutter, I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to be your friend. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to keep you from the bottom. Now listen to me. That's the only way you can help your friend. If you stay distinct from your friend, you preserve yourself, but you lose your friend. If you conform, you keep your friend, but you lose yourself and you don't really help your friend. But if you engage, if you remain distinct and yet you love, then you can help. But listen to me. When you do that, what will happen? You guys know, right? What will your friend say in response? Your friend will hate you. Your friend will be so irritated with you. Your friend will say, listen to me. You're a good friend and all, but I need you to keep shut. I need you to keep your mouth shut. But out of my business. Get out of my life if you're going to be like that. You see, you can only be my friend if you don't say anything. But what will you say? You'll say, no, I'm your friend and I won't get out. I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep you from being deeper into this alcoholism. And this is why Jesus says, know that the world will hate you. You see, the assumption behind Jesus saying that in our passage is that we engage the world, we're distinct from the world, and yet we're loving the world. And why does the world hate us? Because Jesus says, the world hated me before it hated you. And why does the world hate Jesus? Because Jesus came to proclaim repentance unto life. He came to say, turn from your sins and turn to me and live. 
But the world hates that because the Bible tells us the world is in rebellion against God. And the world hates the message of repentance. And when we as Christians identify with Christ, when we're the messengers of Christ, we incur the same wrath and we incur the same hatred. There's this oh, fascinating passage in 2 Corinthians 2.2 where it talks about this. The Apostle Paul says that uh, to those who are being saved, Christians are an aroma to Christ. We're the sweet aroma. But to those who are perishing, we're a fragrance unto death. We're like a stench in the nostril. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. And uh, if you know that movie, right, it's the story of Annie Dufresne. And Annie Dufresne has been falsely uh, convicted of murder and he's sentenced to Shawshank Penitentiary. And the thing you need to know about Shawshank is that it is a dismal and dark place full of just evil and brutality and it's a place of utter hopelessness. And into that world steps Annie Dufresne. And as you watch the movie, there's something different about Annie Dufresne, right? There's this lightness about his step. There's this irrepressible joy that he has even amidst this darkness. And he's a, he's a kind of puzzle. It's a mystery. Until at the very end of the movie, you find out why. And I'm sorry if I'm ruining the story for you. But at the end of the movie, you find out that all along, Andy Dufresne has been digging an escape tunnel out of the prison. And so therefore, all along, he knew that not only did he not belong there, but he wouldn't perish in that prison, right? That he wouldn't be crushed by that prison, that one day he would be free. And what that meant is that, you know, he didn't just keep his head low and just wait it out before he could finally escape. That made him the most courageous, the most beneficial inmate in that prison of all. And he would do all sorts of things, like he would set up a library to educate the prisoners, to give them hope. And my favorite scene in the movie, right, he breaks into the public announcement room and he locks the door and he puts on this record of uh, opera music, right? And it's just this beautiful, ethereal music just filling the air of the prison, right? And as the, soul, as the guard, prison guards are trying to break into the door, just for those few minutes, this beautiful music, all the prisoners can hear. And for those fleeting moments, they get a taste of what it's like to be free. They get a foretaste of just freedom. And so Andy Dufresne is like this light shining into this dark prison, right? He's just this ray of hope. But you know what happens in the movie, right? There's this gang called the Sisters, and they hate Andy. And they target him for their brutality because they just, they don't like his, you know, his smugness maybe, you know, the fact that he's just all the time optimistic. And so they beat on him and they almost kill him. And the thing about Shawshank Redemption, it's almost in there in the movie title, right, is that I think it's a great picture of the Christian in this life. You see, Jesus tells us that when you follow me, when you engage the world and love the world, you will suffer. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul doesn't say, oh, some Christians will be persecuted. He says, every single one of you will be persecuted when you live faithfully to me. 
You see, there has to be some tension with the world. There has to be some dissonance. There has to be some kind of uh, discomfort. And it doesn't have to be outright hatred. It doesn't have to be like people trying to kill you. You don't have to be dodging bullets. Uh, but there has to be something where the world is not quite comfortable with, with you. You're, you're somewhat of an irritation. And if the world says to you, oh, it's all good, you know, I don't have any problems with you. You're good. There's, there's total peace. Then maybe you need to reevaluate your Christian life. You know, rethink, are you being a ninja Christian? Or are you being an obnoxious Christian? You don't feel any problems. And so here's the question. Why would we willingly put ourselves in that situation? Why would we willingly, voluntarily suffer And the answer Jesus gives us is in verse 20. Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. What is Jesus saying? He's pointing to himself. And he's saying, Don't you realize that if I merely wanted to preserve myself, if I only wanted a place of safety and comfort, then you would be lost. But I put myself in a place where I would be hated and rejected and killed in order to save you. You see, that's the gospel, that God engaged the world and he loved the world at enormous cost to himself. And when you believe this, the gospel becomes not just a doctrine that you believe at the beginning, not just, you know, an abstract truth that you accept and then you become a Christian, but it becomes a pattern for you to live. So that when you're at your job, And maybe your boss asks you to do something that you know is dishonest. And you say, I can't dishonor Christ like that. Maybe you're going to lose a promotion. Maybe you'll lose your job. Or maybe you're with your friends. And your friends, come on, we all know this happens, right? Your friends are terrorizing and picking on this poor little kid because he's strange and he's different. And you say, Jesus loves the weak and the marginalized. And I'm going to stand with him. And your friends say, you're a loser. And you lose your popularity. And when it comes at enormous cost and enormous suffering, then what you're doing in your Christian life is you're doing gospel reenactment. Right? You're, doing, you're following in the pattern of the gospel. And so in your life, as you suffer, you proclaim Christ. And so let me close with this. Some of you are saying, well, how do I know that I'm truly engaging with the world? Let me give you a test. And this is by no means a comprehensive test, uh, but just food for thought, okay? Look at your circle of friends. When you look at your circle of friends, is it the case that you barely have any non-Christian friends? Maybe if that's the case, you should ask yourself, is that because I'm withdrawing from the world? Is that because I've condemned all my Christian friends and no one wants to be my friend anymore? Or when you look at your circle of friends, do you have tons and tons of non-Christian friends? But the only reason why you have so many is because you stay silent. You never intrude Jesus Christ or the gospel into that relationship. You see, you know that you're truly engaging with the world when you have a lot of non-Christian friends and they know you're a Christian and they know the gospel because you tell them the gospel. You share it with them. You know, not, you know, at inappropriate moments, not at every single phone call. But, you know, those situations when they really are talking to you heart to heart deeply 
and you just tell them. And some of you are saying, well, how do I do that? Well, look at Christ. I mean, isn't Christ, isn't it amazing? He utterly condemned greed and lust, and yet he was constantly surrounded by prostitutes and rich people. (laughs) How is that possible? And I'll tell you how. You see, Jesus condemned the sin, but he loved the sinner. And that's the gospel, right? That you are more sinful and more lost than you can possibly imagine, you tell your friend. But you're more loved and more treasured than you can possibly dare hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we have been called out of the world. We are not of the world. And yet you send us into the world. And Lord, we pray that we would respond to that mission, that we would be faithful, we would be courageous, and we would suffer alongside with you. And in that way, Lord, we proclaim Christ, for you suffered for our sake. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.